Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. You've got Aaron. Hey, did you know that 30 years ago this week, Tailspin ended? Yes. You did know that. Okay. Well, I, I thought you might because yeah. I know that you're a huge fan of the Jungle Book. Yes. And having gone so far as to start a band that was based entirely on the Jungle Book. So I'm just curious, were you a Tailspin fan? Who was your favorite character? What did you think? You know what? Honestly, I remember Tailspin, but I don't know that I ever watched it. I did. I mean, I, who doesn't love Baloo? It's an odd character for him to play, a pilot, but I'm into it. It's an odd character for a bear to play. <laughs> for a bear, but specifically Baloo, who lived in the jungles of India. Just, yeah, wasn't his normal type role. No, no, no. That makes sense. Which is cool, you know, he probably didn't want to get typecast, and here he is playing a totally different type character. It's pretty great. And wasn't King Louie in it, too? He was. I, I have no idea. I've never watched it. At all. You were the only person I could think who might have watched it. And even you, even you, who even self-proclaimed Jungle Book fanatic, didn't yeah, watch well, it. Yeah, well, this isn't the Jungle Book, Luke. This is not the Jungle Book, okay? Tailspin's from the Jungle Book. Tailspin has characters from the Jungle Book. And even those are, like, revoiced by people from the early 90s. Are you telling me that wasn't Baloo's voice? <laughs> not to mention, Luke, I was a fan of the book. I like the Disney movie, but that's not what the band I started was based on. It was based on the book. Okay, Luke, you know what? I resent the fact that you're calling me acting like I should be a fan of a television show I didn't watch because of something that wasn't even really me in the first place. So you know what? I don't even know why we're having this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, hey, I appreciate your time, man. Cub. I'll talk to you later. Hey, anytime. We'll see you. See ya. (laughs) familiar media group this is 30 pop a weekly peek back at the music movies sports fashion politics and news from 30 years ago i'm your host luke braun this is season three episode 30 inventions twins and pseudonyms today we're looking back at the week that ended saturday august 10th 1991 Hello friends, family, neighbors, strangers, and fellow 90s nostalgia lovers. Welcome to another episode of 30 Pop. As you could probably guess if you've ever listened to this show, I am very, very glad you're here. If you're a 30 Pop newbie, here's what you can expect from the next 15 to 20 minutes of your life. We're getting ready to travel together exactly 30 years into the past, to this specific week in 1991, and metaphorically speaking, we're going to cruise the mall together. We'll see what folks are wearing, browse the record store, see what's playing at the movie theater, and eavesdrop on all the hot goss about current events. So, slap on your bracelets, pump up your sneakers, put some gel in your hair, or mousse if you prefer, and let's get going. If you were scrolling through the radio this week in 1991, you were probably finding Brian Adams' Everything I Do, I Do It For You from the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves soundtrack on more than a couple of stations. And you probably weren't sad about it. 
at least not for a couple more weeks. That was the top song in the country for the third of seven straight weeks. Other singles in the top ten and getting major radio play 30 years ago this week were Passion by Rhythm Syndicate, Every Heartbeat by Contemporary Christian Crossover Act Amy Grant, Summertime by DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, a.k.a. Will Smith, an artist who we embrace on this show and all the wholeness of his humanity as a musician, actor, social media icon, father, husband, activist, you name it. Will, you have our full support on this show. You always have and you always will. The number one song on the Hot Country chart for the second and final week was Trisha Yearwood's She's in Love with the Boy. But we had a new song claiming the top spot on the Hot Rap chart. The artist, Chub Rock. The song, The Chubster. This was Rock's second number one single in 1991 from his third full-length studio album, The One. I find the relationship between rap music and body image pretty fascinating. A key element of hip-hop culture is the use of nicknames, often childhood nicknames, as pseudonyms for career artists. And childhood nicknames are so often related to a person's most prominent physical feature. So we have overweight rappers with names like Chub Rock, Heavy D, The Fat Boys, The Notorious B.I.G., and Fat Joe. We have short rappers with names like Lil Wayne and white rappers with names like Vanilla Ice. It's so unique to hip-hop, but I kind of wish it wasn't. It's fun to imagine how we'd refer to the other big names in music at the time. Like, Nirvana's frontman would have just been Blonde Kurt. R.E.M.'s lead singer? Skinny Mike. Country sextet Diamond Rio? The Fluffy Mullet Boys. I don't know, and I don't particularly want to know what my pseudonym would be. Anyway. We also had a new number one song on the hot R&B and hip-hop chart this week in 1991, and I've been anxiously anticipating this one for months. And now, the wait is finally over. I've spoken at length this year about the deep love I've always felt for R&B quintet High Five, whose single, I Like the Way, The Kissing Game, saw chart success earlier this year. Well, they're back on top this week with what I believe to be not only their greatest song, but one of the greatest songs in the whole R&B genre. In the top 100 for sure, which, given the amount of extraordinary music that genre contains, is truly saying something. The song, I Can't Wait Another Minute. In all honesty, I revere this song in much the same way I do DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince's Summertime, which was number one on this chart last week. And I feel very conflicted as I wish they could both be number one. The same as I mentioned having deeply nostalgic memories associated with Summertime, this song is the soundtrack for some especially memorable moments in my life as an 11-year-old. And it was massively formative to my musical taste as a kid. If you missed this one 30 years ago, which is entirely possible as High Five's moment in the spotlight was unfortunately far too short-lived, I can't recommend it highly enough. 
For my money, it's in the same realm as Jodeci's cover of Stevie Wonder's Lately and Boys to Men's On Bended Knee. It's an amazing song, especially the live version that made the rounds on radio stations back in the day. The top album in the country for the third consecutive week was Natalie Cole's Unforgettable with Love, which, while I'm sure it's an excellent album, I also find pretty surprising. It just doesn't seem like the type of album that would have this sort of multi-week reign at number one. That being said, I would choose it 100% of the time over the album that will replace it in just a few short weeks. We have a couple new album releases this week in 1991 as well. One being the gold-selling sophomore album from rapper and gifted lyricist Young MC, entitled Brainstorm. An album that, in contrast to his wildly successful debut, Stone Cold Ryman, had no major singles and did little to gain any sort of critical traction. Second was the highly acclaimed platinum-selling debut from soul, hip-hop, R&B, rap brother duo PM Dawn. Of the heart, of the soul, and of the cross. The utopian experience. I loved this album and group so much and look forward to talking about their best-known single, Set Adrift on Memory Bliss, when it hits number one later this year. Number one at the box office this week in 1991 for the second straight week was the Charlie Sheen comedy spoof Hot Shots. But that wasn't the only option for lovers of cornball comedy. We had a couple of other beyond silly films opening in theaters on August 9th, 1991. First up was the John Candy, Mariel Hemingway movie, Delirious. Jack Gable may appear to be successful, but he still has his problems. Here, let me help you up here. Especially with women. Jack, when are you going to stop kidding yourself about Laura? There's nothing going on between me and Laura. (laughs) I know that. (laughs) But do you? Till one day, the writer of the sappiest soap on TV. These heart-lung-liver transplants are almost routine. Good scene. Really great scene. Had a slight accident. And woke up to find himself. Living in his own show. You're in Ashford Falls Community Hospital. <laughs> there is no Ashford Falls. <laughs> See for yourself. Oh, no! All I want to do is get out of this stinking little town. You say you're a writer, then, then, then write your way out! <gasps> What's the rush? Where am I running? <laughs> now, I'll make Rachel beg for me. With the help of his typewriter. He can make himself into the man he's always wanted to be. I love this. But suddenly, things just aren't going according to the script. I didn't write any of this. And all he wants is to write his way home. Oh, God, I couldn't have been that drunk. Why else did I write last night? But getting there will require the minimum of typos. The bartender needs more cold deer. Not deer. Beer! John Candy. I know this may sound crazy, but I created this whole town! (laughs) Mariel Hemingway. Emma Sands. He has this strange power over me. Raymond Burr. 
What the hell is going on around here? Delirious. I'm in hell, and my punishment is spending eternity on my own show. I hate to say it because I genuinely love so many of John Candy's classics, but if you really look at his entire body of work, this commercial flop is pretty par for the course. Candy was way more hit or miss than we tend to remember collectively. For every Uncle Buck, Spaceballs, Home Alone, and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles on his resume, there's also a delirious Who's Harry Crumb or a crappy made-for-TV movie to balance the scales. Simply starring John Candy did not a blockbuster make. And that was certainly the case here. This movie is estimated to have cost nearly $20 million to produce. It made back about a tenth of that its opening weekend and only ever made about $5.5 million worldwide all said and done. Another new comedy release fared quite a bit better at the box office, though. One which I remember loving, but had honestly mostly forgotten about before now. Martin Short and Danny Glover in Pure Luck. Somewhere on the Mexican Riviera, a beautiful heiress has been kidnapped. To find her, they'll need the best team in the business. He has the experience, but his regular partner wasn't available. So they found someone even more lethal to himself. Oh, if you send somebody after her who's as unlucky as she is, you could literally stumble onto her. Oh, this is some kind of joke or something. At the age of three, he's almost strangled by the cord from some draperies. Mr. Proctor is here, sir. I want you to go to Mexico and look for my daughter. This man has been hit by lightning twice. Once while inside a movie theater. I think we're going to make a good team. I am trained in martial arts. Only you. It can only happen to you. You're jealous because women are attracted to me and you can't stand it. Stay still. short. It's a bee. What? I'm allergic to bee stings. Danny Glover. Are you alright? Fine. And you? Pure luck. As I mentioned, I loved this movie as a kid. I knew Martin Short mainly as Jack Putter from Inner Space and Ned Niederlander from the John Landis comedy classic Three Amigos with Steve Martin and Chevy Chase. And that was more than enough to convince me that he was one of the funniest human beings alive. So this is one of the first movies I distinctly remember being really excited about before it came out. I'm sure I was excited about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Batman, Back to the Future 2, 3, etc. But I specifically remember seeing this trailer and knowing I just had to see the movie. That being said, it didn't exactly blow the doors off the box office. It was profitable, but not by a huge margin. It cost just over $17 million to produce and made back right around $25 million. A little over 20% of that came on this, its opening weekend 30 years ago. The funniest movie to release this weekend in 1991, though, at least looking back, wasn't actually a comedy at all. It was the R-rated action flick Double Impact. Jean-Claude Van Damme. He always makes an impact. Now, get ready for 
global impact. There's two of them. Think about it. Van Damme. Oh, wow. Times two. He looks exactly like you. Me? Twin brothers. Reunited on a mission. Watch my back. To avenge their parents' death. One packs a punch. One packs a piece. Good to me. Together, they deliver. Double impact. Excuse me. From Hollywood to the Far East. On land. On sea. And in the air. What do we do? That's what I love about you. Van Damme. Times two. Double the fun. I would never in my life wear black silk underwear. I'm with you on that one. And double the bad damage. Double impact. This is an absurd movie in essentially every way. And I was a huge fan. I don't know how I saw this in theaters at only 11 years old, but I'm about 90% sure I did. I at least rented it because I remember thinking Van Damme was so cool in it, and I was so cool for having seen it. This movie, along with all its JCVD siblings and Steven Seagal cousins, are just ridiculous in retrospect. But in the moment, they were just the best. This movie made $7.5 million its opening weekend, recouping about half its estimated budget. All said and done, it brought home over $30 million worldwide, more than enough to keep the genre and Jean-Claude's career alive and well for some time. The last little bit of news from this week in 1991, a particularly historic moment that we wouldn't recognize as such for several more years. On August 6th, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who we've discussed on occasion over the last couple years, released his files describing his idea for the computer networking system he referred to as the World Wide Web. And for the first time, the WWW became publicly available on the internet. Berners-Lee is a fascinating character. I definitely recommend researching him a bit. But for his contribution to humanity, you wouldn't be hearing this right now. And In fact, I wouldn't be saying it, as I'd have no accessible way to research for this show. And I can't even imagine what the past 18 months of living through a global pandemic would have looked like without the ability for so many to stay informed, work remotely, etc. Suffice to say, in more ways than we can count, Tim Berners-Lee is one of the most important characters in human history. And 30 years ago this week, that fact began really revealing itself. Anyway, that's all I've got for you today, friends. I did want to give you a heads up, though, about what to expect over the next few episodes. With the fall steadily approaching and my personal schedule shifting around a bit, I'm going to briefly alter the release schedule for 30 Pop. The next three episodes will be special double episodes looking back at two weeks each. So expect bi-weekly releases for a few episodes with perhaps a little bonus episode thrown in for good measure. And then in late September, we'll resume our normal weekly release schedule. So again, I'll be back in two weeks, and I do hope you'll join me. And maybe even invite a friend. For now, though, take your fancy clothes and your black silk underwear and go back to Disneyland. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. 
Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. <laughs>